So I'm going to say something about North Korea and the Kim dynasty and then turn it back to Joseph to say something, I think, about Saddam um, so we can get the really hard cases on the table. And then we'll have our case studies, if you will. And we're not, we, we can't emphasize this enough, we're not drawing any kind of uh, moral equivalency here. This is quite a wide spectrum. I think I would much rather live in Ankara than Pyongyang, it's safe to say, <laughs> um, for a whole host of reasons. But we want to get these four examples on the table and then uh, come back and look at some common denominators. Because just listening um, to the previous presentations by Joseph and Sinan, I can already hear some, some things that are quite comparable to China or North Korea and some things that are quite different because of the regional context. But let me first say just a few things about um, the uh, great marshal, Kim Jong-un, um, and the Kim dynasty. Um, it is the most repressive and, uh, although it's not a social science term, I will use it, evil regime on the face of the earth today. Um, but again, it's not all because of coercion. Um, critically important to the Kim dynasty's uh, endurance is the cult of personality. Um, it was interesting to hear Joseph say that Stalin was such an important role model. Um, Stalin, of course, made Kim Il-sung uh, a major in the partisans, taught him uh, upon his, uh, his Kim Il-sung's return to North Korea in 1945 how to create a cult of personality. The North Korean propaganda is modeled primarily on Stalinism, but also Mao I remember having Fu Ying, a very senior Chinese official in my office in the White House, and I had a piece of North Korean art, and she at first thought it was Maoist art. But the cult of personality also includes, includes Christian icons, because um, Protestant missionaries, particularly from North America, were very active in the northern part of the Korean Peninsula in the 19th century. And the propaganda around Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il includes images like stars rising over Mount Pekdu when Kim Jong-il is born, and things that are right out of the, of the Bible. Uh, Kim Il-sung um, uh, was a Methodist, was raised Methodist. And so anything that taps into tradition, cultural legitimacy, even Christianity, ironically, the North Koreans use, but primarily Stalin. So Stalin has left us uh, a legacy in both our regions and beyond that is uh, truly uh, horrific. The buying matters, too. As I mentioned, Kim Il-sung provided shoes. In North Korea, on Kim Il-sung's birthday, Children would get shoes, people would get things. The state controlled the distribution of goods. It's critical. Now the regime relies much less on providing goods to 70, 80% of the population, um, but it's very focused on ensuring that the elite in Pyongyang have access to Mercedes-Benz, to cognac. Uh, I imagine this is not unlike Saddam and, and the, the, the, the most authoritarian systems in the Middle East, that keeping the elite you know, fat, dumb, and happy um, and giving them all the privileges they would have in an open society, at least materially, is a critical part, uh, particularly those who have uh, control of the instruments, of course, of power, the military, the secret police. Of all of the three tools, bullying is the most important for North Korea. I remember when Dennis and I were working for President George W. Bush, he was very, very concerned about human rights in North Korea, and he ordered the, um, the NGA, the agency that does satellite imagery, to find these camps that defectors kept talking about, and they couldn't find them. It was the most curious thing. And then they realized they were looking for camps the size of, you know, Dachau or Auschwitz. That's what they thought of when they thought of concentration camps. And when the defectors gave them more details, they decided they needed to look for something bigger, and they followed fence lines and realized that these camps were the size of Austin, Texas, with tens and tens of thousands of people inside, uh, mining uranium until they died of starvation, um, 
hundreds of thousands of people um, suffering in this way. And of course, coercion is also used against the elite, particularly uh, when other things, buying and providing goods or cult of personality aren't working so well. And for Kim Jong-un, in a Stalinist system, uh, which has become dynastic, there are legitimacy challenges. And he has had to compensate with propaganda showing him with the same haircut as Kim Il-sung riding the same white horse. But he's had to compensate with a lot of violence against the elite. He has uh, killed his uncle, Chang Song-tek, who was sort of the guardian of the transition from Kim Jong-il and had ties to China that bothered the, uh, the leadership of Kim Jong-un. Uh, he killed his half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, uh, in the Kuala Lumpur airport with VX agent, a nerve gas, a nerve agent, which, by the way, was a, you also use violence to scare people. When you kill the chicken, you always scare the monkey. You always show how vast your violence or capacity for violence is. And the estimates range, um, but he has killed close to 100 of his top generals since taking power. So the violence is not just against the masses, it's also against the elite. And at times of transition, especially, especially so. Is he in control? That's an important question. I mean, does a, someone who's really in control have to kill their uncle, 90-some generals? It's a good question we can come back to. But that's a much, much harder case of repression that's beyond even medieval uh, standards. And uh, we'll put one more on the table, Joseph, and then we can come back and look sure. at some cross-cutting themes. So just to talk a little bit about Saddam Hussein, I think it's similar to what we are listening. It's a very complicated personality, really hard to define it in a one dimension. I think in general, he was really the master of manipulating internal politics, but at the same time, um, really, you cannot give him better than C if you're a generous professor, the way he interpret international affairs. He really misread every time there was a major crisis. Obviously, the best case is the invasion of Kuwait, where he really misinterpreted everything. He didn't understand what the fall of the Soviet Union meant, and he just plowed in. And of course, the final and fatal mistake of misinterpreting um, the international affairs is really pre the invasion, when everyone among his friends, be it the French or the Jordanians or the Russians, were telling him that the Americans are determined to topple him and this is not going to be a, re a repeat of 1991. He really did not heed the advice because, again, he misinterpreted it. And that takes me to an interesting point for all of us. What is this information? They all have huge security services, but do they really have the right information? And we see this in so many cases. We saw it afterwards with Assad, with the uprising. We saw it with Gaddafi, with some of the documents that were stolen and published. We saw it with, uh, in Egypt. So all this huge, there a huge number of informants. Egypt had in, in 2010 750,000 informants. But the information does not percolate to the top to be properly analyzed. And of course, even when it does get analyzed, who is going to tell the president the really unfavorable analysis or in use. And that is really across the board from 
giving bad news to Stalin about World War II or uh, giving bad news to Saddam Hussein. No one wanted to give the boss bad news. And that really prevents and paralyzes all these leaders from really dissecting what is happening. And of course comes the cult of personality and there is this where does the line between delusion and uh, illusions develop where they really believe what they are saying. I think the violence I argue that the violence that they used in countries like this is because of lack of good information. And we have a case study where historically it changed, and that is East Germany. So there was a lot of repression. There was a lot of violence in the 1950s and 1960s. You look at East Germany and the Stasi in the last 10 years, it's much more directed. Now the information is more efficient, so you don't need to really expose the population to a widespread uh, violence. And that is, to me, a very, very important aspect where countries like Egypt, Libya, Iraq, Syria never reached that level and continued to uh, uh, implement, you know, more kind wide violence rather than uh, uh, targeted violence. Interesting, the point that Dennis brought about allowing people to demonstrate. I mean, again, going back to the Soviet Union and Iraq adopted that. Allowing people to complain as long as it is not going all the way to the political leadership. In fact, newspapers were encouraged to um, publish complaints by citizens, be it about education, health, transportation. And it was a source of information, but also a whip to, to get to those other people in the elite in case it is needed to be uh, used against them. I think it is really important also to understand people like Saddam, because given what happened after 2003, to me, the most critical point for Saddam was one thing and one thing only, loyalty. He did not care whether someone is really more Sunni and Shi'i and there were Shi'is in the hierarchy, top hierarchy of the intelligence services, the party, the army. To him was one question. Is the person going to be loyal 100%? Not 99%. You can be 99% from a Sunni from his own tribe, from his own village. That does not work. He needs the 100%. And that really guided him over the whole period of, of 35 years. Um, I'm going to stop here because there are a lot of points that everyone has raised and, and maybe open it to questions. Not the, the, the allowing uh, the information point is, is fascinating and it suggests why authoritarian leaders, um, the more authoritarian they are, the more power they have, but the more unpredictable and dangerous they are. That's an important point. And the allowing protests is also interesting, although I was, when both you and Dennis were speaking, Joseph, I was thinking of Mao's Thousand Flower campaigns where he encouraged intellectuals to voice their criticism so he could identify them and round them up. Um, another strategy we use in Asian studies. <laughs> um, let me ask a few cost-cutting questions. Um, 
I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, one of the common denominators in all of the countries and with all of the leaders we're talking about is a profound sense of grievance against the West, which of course is, is sort of foundational to nationalism in East Asia uh, and uh, Southwest Asia and the Middle East to begin with, but, but it seems even more pronounced. Is that right? Is grievance an important part of the authoritarian's toolkit now? Is it fair? Are, are there grievances? Um, and I'd be interested in how um, you would react to uh, Dennis's point that, in a way, the unipolar moment um, or the role of the United States is a key variable. Um, you know, Dennis was suggesting that the US was perhaps too powerful at one point and gave birth to these more authoritarian responses. But it, you could argue the opposite as well, right? Mm -hmm. That right now, the US is uh, no longer, is no longer right? as powerful right. or that the democratic model is not as compelling, perhaps. So if, if we could um, maybe start with you, Dennis, but talk about grievances against mm -hmm. the West, the role right. of the West, the American example, and the sort of exogenous factors yeah. that are driving this. Why don't you start us off? Well, I, I do think the Chinese government has very adroitly used grievances um, to sort of rally people around the flag at different points in time. I don't think it's just against the West, uh, the Japanese. The fact that Chinese textbooks uh, still continue to talk about Japanese aggression. When I go to Beijing and I turn on the television, I see stories about Japan over and over again and the wartime atrocities of the Japanese even today. Um, and this is, this is useful as a tool to a regime to say, again, there are outside threats, there are people who want to take us down. You know, there, there is still this belief in Beijing that the United States is trying to find the way to bring China down. One of the things I find most incredible is they say that the uh, protests in Hong Kong have to be sponsored by the United States. They can't possibly be spontaneous. Well, I think this is somewhat disingenuous. I think it's a way to keep the population uh, with the regime. After all, if you don't have dangers out there, how can the strong man continue to, to command supreme loyalty of the people? I think grievances against the West uh, is one of a number of tools in the arsenal of Tayyip Erdogan, um, which um, he uses and utilizes quite effectively to try and solidify his own sort of base of support um, for a variety of reasons. What, what Tayyip Erdogan is trying to do in, in this context um, in terms of inst instigate a regime now which is a, essentially one-man rule is really difficult for him simply because it runs contrary to the sort of development of the Turkish Republic and the state entity which sort of originated back in the early 1920s. Turkey was established as a one-party state. Kemal Atatürk, or Mustafa Kemal, was a, an authoritarian ruler until his, his death. But the intention of the country and the regime as it was established then was to make a country which was a mirror era image of what was referred to as contemporary civilization. Atatürk and the founding fathers of Turkey were the last generation of Ottoman radicals that wanted to establish a modern nation state, if such a thing exists. And it was Turkey's second president, İsmet İnönü, which delivered on that following in the World War II. He was under no compulsion as a former military general to transition Turkey from a one-party state to a multi-party system, competitive politics, 
But he did, because on the night of the election in 1950, Inonu basically said, when the military were warning him not to do this, as, as, as in go forward with a free and fair election, and Inonu's response was, our greatest defeat as a party will be our greatest victory in democratization. And just throughout the decades that it ensued, you have Turkey joining NATO in 1952, a founding member of the United Nations in San Francisco signed up with the Ankara Association Agreement to join the EEC in the early 19, late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, part of the Western, Western European Union defense strategies. All of these developments of being a Western partner, uh, but also the Europeanization effect that gripped Turkey uh, and substantively trans transitioned its, its democratic system throughout the ages, are movements that Erdogan is railing against because he is up against, for, for better or worse, a very vibrant, plural society. So keeping this under his thumb and shaping a regime that, that he would like to have is, in my opinion, still riding against the tide of forces that he is up against. But grievances against the West and what you refer to as um, resource control uh, and flow of information. Um, these are tactics that, that he is keenly employing. And it's also a trajectory he might not have wanted to have go, go, gone down. Um, why is Erdogan doing this? Why are we in a situation whereby, just as a short time ago, or at least it seems to me, in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, he was very much in favor of positioning Turkey to become a full member of the European Union, a keen ally that even President Obama referred to as a model partner for the United States. Why did Erdogan, they've always, they, we were asking questions of how we lost Erdogan or why did Erdogan change? We can spend a lot of time on this and I don't want to take up too much time, but it's a very simple explanation, I have to say this. <laughs> the reason why Turkey under Erdogan is going this way and out of what I would call the norm of being a, you know, a flawed democracy and a muddled democracy is Erdogan is facing existential challenges to his personal rule that implicate his family, his party crony capitalistic networks, which they will be harmed as well, and, if, and, and, and, and the consequences of facing the law or justice, which would land certainly himself and his entire family, as well as the highest echelons of the Turkish state in jail, has forced his hand to be as aggressive as possible. So there are existential threats against him, and there is no alternative for Erdogan but to usurp power into his own personal hands. Um, so at the very basic level, he still has to mobilize and utilize popular legitimacy. If he does not get elected one way or another, he does not survive. So to the base of voters or the voting public in Turkey, he has to deliver economically and some way to the lowest common denominator, we talk about distribution systems. You mentioned shoes. Erdogan does it with heating fuel, coal, and even food stuff to the poorest parts of society. To the small, med small and medium-sized businesses, we see contracts, public tenders, right? Big businesses, you only get land big tenders in uh, Turkey or international contracts uh, with Erdogan's personal approval now. So there's a distribution system that Erdogan's in control. Coercion is something that he has become a master of, um, and we can talk about this forever. I mean, he learned after the Gezi protests of 2013, if, if 10 people go out in the streets with banners to protest the government, 
He's learned that you deploy 100 people, or police officers, and you give those police officers unending authority. If, you, if they shoot a protester lethally, no repercussions. There will be no trials against these people. That is an assurance given to these, uh, these officers. If you, if you show up 1,000 people, he'll deploy the army. So it's disproportionate use of force and coercion. And, and the last thing I'll mention before turning it over is institutional capture. Turkey's state institutions, whether it's law enforcement, the judiciary, parliament, you know, all the checks and balances on the system have been degraded and essentially sanitized, or another word would be Erdogan compliant in the last seven years. That includes the appointment of all judges and prosecutors in the realm now that are Erdogan compliant. Police officers do not question orders, they follow it, because you, otherwise you're out of a job. The media in Turkey, 80, most Turks get their information from broadcast media. 85% of that, as we can best determine, is now Erdogan friendly or compliant, otherwise they lose their licenses. But Erdogan does have to deliver. He has to basically put up with a tidal wave of different plural or pluralist opposition forces among society, or placate them, or uh, delegitimize them. So it's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, he has to constantly try and put down, put out one fire after another. Uh, but the question remains is how long this show can actually go on. Maybe longer than we think, I don't know. Joseph, you want to pick on the Western grievances? Sure. Um, I mean, I think it's really an important point. And, and, and again, there is a wide variety. You have countries like Egypt, who since 1980 has been very pro the US and West due to uh, uh, the aid. You have countries like Syria, who really historically identified with the Soviet Union, but even post-Soviet Union never really and uh, went back to the US as other countries have done, and partly because of the West, what, what is seen as the West support uh, uh, for Israel. Iraq is interesting, because when Saddam came to, the, to power with his group, actually a lot of people in the West were relatively happy, because remember in 1968, the Cold War was still going on, and here comes the anti-communists who were in 1963, when they were in power for nine months, butchered more than 5,000 communists. So th there was really no antipathy to that regime. And then, of course, the two countries became very close during three, four years of the Iran-Iraq war, the US was supplying almost on a daily basis intelligence information to the Iraqi to be able to use it against Iranian targets. This really came to an abrupt end with the Iran-Contra when a newspaper uh, gave details that uh, there was this arrangement to sell arms also via a very convoluted way to Iran, and that really kind finished the, the, the cooperation. But the relationship continued on throughout the 80s. One of the few things, and I'm a little bit conflicting myself about saying how bad he was in misinterpreting international relations. Actually, in 1985-86, Saddam gave a speech to an internal group of the Ba'ath and said, this communist system is not going to survive. 
um, because they can't feed their people. They can't make them progress. And no regime in the world can survive without giving its people that reward. Proved to be very prophetic a couple of years later. But of course, the final break and where the West was seen as everything bad, and the US in particular, was after the invasion of Kuwait and the defeat of, of Iraq in, in that war. That really culminated all the way to the invasion. You know, the, I want to come back um, to Shinan's point about um, Erdogan having no choice uh, but to do this. And it's a really interesting way to think about authoritarian leaders. You know, in social science, we, we, we, we try to decide how much is agency and how much is structure. Mm -hmm. But in a way, the agency is forced by the structure. The nature of these regimes may force these leaders for their own survival to do what they do and become even more authoritarian. I think that would be an accurate description of the Kim Jong-un regime. Um, his brutality, his nuclear weapons, everything he's doing, it's not, it's not necessarily the case that he's chortling, you know, like a, like a, like a Dr. Evil with a cat <laughs> on his lap. <laughs> he, uh, he may be quite terrified, and psychoanalyses uh, uh, of, of authoritarian leaders um, frequently point to the presence of narcissism, but also extreme paranoia and fear. And um, I, it made me think of Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. Would you describe the Chinese leadership in a similar dilemma if they let? Right. I think there are a couple of things that are similar here. And one is that when you get beyond the revolutionary leader, okay, the man who created all of this, the Kim Il-sung, the Mao Zedong, the Deng Xiaoping's, legitimacy in these authoritarian regimes, how do you pass it mm -hmm. on? How does this new leader prove that they are deserving of the same uh, degree of control of the system that their father or grandfather? You know, one of the interesting things I found about Kim Il-sung was one of the things he did, or apparently was very much part of, was the sinking of the South Korean uh, destroyer, frigate? Uh, Corvette. Corvette, excuse me, Corvette. Now, that gave him combat legitimacy. He could say he's the, what, young marshal, great marshal. He, he got some legitimacy by doing that. Similarly, one of the things that Xi Jinping has cloaked himself in is the PLA. If you look at these military parades he has, he now wears camouflage uniforms. He goes and says, I'm the commander in chief of the armed forces. These future generations in these systems have to work harder at this than the original leader because they are insecure. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. they know they don't have that legitimacy of being the guy who, who began it all. They're not the George Washington of China. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're distantly removed from the Civil War and the Revolution. And so I do think there, there is, they are insecure. Would that be Assad or others in the Middle East? Similar dilemma? I think so. I mean, I think the dilemma for when the father Assad dies and then how does the son really get the same legitimacy, particularly that the father was a senior general in the Air Force, had the respect of the military, comes a totally different personality. And I think, yes, part of the struggle is, I think it's really North Korea being an exception. Uh, uh, the leaders, e each one has a different style. We really did not see 
a new generation of authoritarian leaders. I mean, once Saddam gone, there is a total different uh, vacuum. Um, in, in Libya, it's a failed state. Um, Egypt was replaced by one with another. Actually, one could argue that the current one is worse than Mubarak on, on, on many levels from an authoritarian point of view. So we really don't have uh, uh, that experience. I want to just ask also Sinan one question, because unlike the, all our cases, Erdogan did have the support. I mean, he didn't come through a military coup or just inherited because he was the second in command in the uh, Politburo. Is there still that demand, uh, the support for him? That's a, that's a good question. Um, we can say with reasonable certainty, based on our understanding of polling in Turkey and public opinion surveys, at least half the country hates him. <laughs> and, I, and, and, I, and I choose that word carefully. I mean, hate is a strong word. At least half the country hates him. I think on top of that, another 20% would probably, if given a credible alternative, would, would vote for someone else if they thought they could be a credible alternative uh, president. That's a really hard picture to be up against uh, for Erdogan. And thank you for picking up on this new, nuance of, um, of, the, of, the, of this sort of threat mentality. See, uh, just to add to that a couple of points, which I think complements a lot of what we've been saying. For example, the downfall of Morsi, um, the street killing of Gaddafi, mm -hmm. this really worried Erdogan. Yeah. I mean, we know that this really shocked and scared yeah. him in the sense that, and he honestly believes that the West is behind this. Mm -hmm. And that was compounded on top of that uh, by the coup attempt in Turkey, which Erdogan again virtually blames at the foot of powers such as now the United States for harboring people like Gulen. Uh, but also the West or the United States backing what he considers to be terrorist fighters in, in Syria against the Islamic State. But also he's got possibly a legitimate gripe against the European Union. I mean, you know, I remember European diplomats and European heads of state in the mid, late 2000s, like 2007. They would roll their eyes at people like me saying, you know, why in the accession process for Turkey you're not giving a final accession date? like you've done to every other applicant country. And not doing so Absolutely. pushes Turkey mm -hmm. away. People literally roll their eyes at people. And Erdogan put a lot of political capital, and he is convinced the European Union also supported the coup. As the coup was unfolding in Turkey in 2016, right? it took 48 hours for the Secretary of State to urge for peace and calm in Turkey, as opposed to Vladimir Putin, Iran, and the United Kingdom to call Erdogan and condemn the coup personally. It took 45 days for the vice president to visit Turkey and say, you know, sorry this happened. So, and Erdogan then stood up on the pulpit and say, you were behind this. Mm -hmm. You were probably complicit. So he's both scared. Um, he's both scared from an electoral standpoint of view uh, because he knows he's, the majority of the country is not behind him. But he's also paranoid uh, mostly from a domestic perspective about institutions and rogue elements trying to topple him, but also he's convinced that the United States in one way or another is seeking to undermine him at all levels. You could take everything you just said, I think, mm -hmm. 
uh, about the Arab Revolution, about the Americans being behind it, about color revolutions, and replace Erdogan with Xi Jinping. Mm. Don't yeah, you sure. think? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the things that the Russians and the Chinese agree completely on is the color revolutions are real, and they are backed by the Americans. And uh, you know, the Ukrainian situation, we don't think about it that way. They very much look at the Ukrainian situation and say, hey, how did this all start? It all started with Maidan, with America exciting these people into the streets mm -hmm. and toppling a regime. And that's why Ukraine is in the mess today, that it is, okay? We look at Crimea, we look at it a different way, um, but from their point of view, um, the West is always kind of out to get them. You know, in the 2005, I think, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which I believe Turkey is an observer yeah. in, mm -hmm. China and Russia at the core, <clears throat> the Chinese and Russians passed out a handbook on how to counter cultural, uh, cultural revolutions, how to counter colored revolutions. <laughs> and they passed it out so widely, we mm. in the U.S. government got mm. a copy. Um, use laws to prevent NGOs from registering. Right. Go out, you know, intimidate the families of people who work for Western NGOs, and so on and so forth. Um, it was a, it was a guide, and you see it being used in China, in Russia, in, in Turkey, um, in Sri Lanka until the last election. Um, uh, if only we were actually that good, <laughs> but you can feel the repercussions. I want to ask one more cross-country theme. It's okay, Joseph. All of these authoritarian leaders, whether it's you know. Kim Jong-un or Erdogan have complicated relationships with their militaries. Mm -hmm. And the militaries, in material terms, the militaries have the most decisive coercive instruments of power. Right. And so these authoritarian leaders or dictators need them, but they fear them. I remember um, when we were still in the White House after the Iraq war, when the uh, US and British intelligence were debriefing the Iraqi leadership, trying to understand why Iraqi corps commanders were saying, you know, to headquarters, release the WMD, right. um, and we and we were told uh, because Saddam was so afraid of his military, he could not let them know that he didn't have WMD, that he was that weak. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Kim Jong Il departed from Kim Il Sung's traditional Stalinist or Leninist um, uh, methods of having the party control the military, and and Kim Jong Il went to Songun, Army First Policy, because he needed the army too much. I think Kim Jong-un has moved a little bit away from that um, and has you know, executed a lot of army leaders and, uh, and, and emphasized the party again. And then you know, within China, it's the, you know, the party controls the gun, but incredibly yeah. complicated relationships. Absolutely. Erdogan, I mean, Turkey's government, as I understand it, depended on the military, and yet Erdogan, in some ways, has broken from that, and yet he depends on the military. So could, maybe each of you could say something about the relationship of these leaders with their militaries. 